You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. So good morning, everyone, and welcome to worship at First Universalist Church. My name's Jen Crow. I'm one of the ministers here at the congregation, and I'm so glad you're with us either in person or listening or watching later. First Universalist is a faith community that welcomes, affirms, and protects the light in each human heart. We listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and with humility, courage, and compassion, we work together to create a more just world. We do all of these things as a faith community that is committed to dismantling white supremacy culture and creating beloved community, a place of shared liberation and freedom and belonging. So this is who we are, and this is the life that we invite you into when you join us. There are all kinds of ways to get involved here at the church and to get to know us better, to let us get to know you. So let me just offer up a couple of those possibilities, whether you're brand new or continuing to get to know us or ready to become a member. So registration is open now for our newcomer circles. It's a place to connect with others who are new to the church. We're also offering our pathways to membership classes for those of you who would like to become members. All of this is taking place throughout March and April. I also want to let you know about two particular opportunities. One is a group First Universalist Accessibility and Inclusion Group. It's designed for people with all types of physical disabilities, hearing disabilities, and visual disabilities. It's a place to gather together to support one another, foster discussions about your lived experiences, accessibility, and ways to promote inclusion within the church. So this group has been meeting for a little while and it welcomes your participation uh, if you are one of those folks that I, that I talked about. So this group is convened and facilitated by youth and adults, ages 13 and up are welcome, and we are excited to have you join us there. This is a group that will gather first and third Thursdays of every month. The next meeting is April 1st. So there are lots of other ways to get involved, to put your faith in action, and be a part of our congregation. You can find more about all those opportunities in the order of service in the Get Connected section, also on our website. So as we gather, Let's do so intentionally. Let's take a moment to settle our bodies and our spirits. And for me, that means I am putting my feet squarely on the floor. You can do this any way that feels right for you. I'm straightening up my spine. I'm putting my hands in my lap. Closing my eyes. You can soften your gaze or keep your eyes open. And the invitation is to take three breaths together on purpose. I'm going to go ahead and breathe in now and breathe out super slowly. And breathe in and out. One more time at your own pace.
we are connected through time and space and the air we breathe. So let's join in lighting our chalice together. Maybe you have a candle you light at home or one that you light in your heart. Today we'll light our chalice with Beth and William and Aria. Please join me in saying the words for lighting our chalice. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. <laughs> That's adorable. Good morning, everybody. The name of our story for today, and you all can sit back and relax. This will be a more traditional telling. The title of the story is The Journey of the Birds. It goes like this. Once upon a time, all the birds in the land decided that they needed a leader for their community. A leader, they thought, would make their community stronger. Representatives of all the bird species gathered to discuss, to discuss finding a leader. A leader will tell us the right things to do, said the robin. A leader must be wise, said the owl. A, a leader must believe we each are important, big and small, said the sparrow. I want a leader to be caring like a friend, said the dove. Yes, the leader should help us share and get along together, said the jay. The leader must make us feel safe, said the hawk. I know where you can find such a leader, said the hoopy bird. It, it is the Simorg, and, and it lives far from here. And the birds were very excited. They said they were willing to go anywhere to find such a leader. It, it might be dangerous, said the Hopi. A, a few birds looked troubled, but all the birds voted to go in search of the Simorg. The Hopi took off, and all of the birds followed. They flew at night, they flew in sunshine, and days and days passed. Some birds got tired and left the group, and other birds were filled with doubt. How did they know that the Simorg really existed? Only the Hopi had ever heard of this bird, and some of the doubters dropped out, but the others kept flying. One valley was filled with fiery mountains, and all the birds were afraid. I'm, I'm too small to make it over that mountain, lamented the sparrow. No, keep flying. We can make it together. We will help you. And they did. The strong flyers helped the weaker flyers. The birds with good vision helped find food for the group. Along the journey, the birds learned how to better respect, share, and care for each other. And it seemed that every bird had something special and unique to offer that made the journey easier. Finally, Hopi announced, we are here. And the other birds looked around in anticipation. Where is the Simorg? We don't see it, they cried. It's said the Hopi. And the birds stood beside the Hopi and realized they were on the edge of a lake. And they looked in and saw their own reflections. And they understood. The Simorg was not another bird. The Simorg was all of them. And all of them were the Simorg. 
And he remembered that each of them had something good and strong and special inside of them and that each bird had gifts to bring the community. They were all that was needed to keep the community strong. They knew now that together they could do anything. And that's the story of the journey of the birds. Now, please join the choir singing all creatures on earth and sky. The lyrics will be on your screen and in the chat. thank you for that. That was wonderful. You are such a gift to us. I was back here, I'm muted, of course, but just singing my heart out. Thank you for that. And Amy, thank you for the story. I What a beautiful story. I must have heard that a long, long time ago. And hearing you tell it again just reminded me of how much I love those stories that take us on a journey. And there's this surprise at the end, which is that you had what you needed when you began, but you just didn't know it. Thank you for that as well. So friends, let's, let's breathe together. This has become such a regular 
settling part of our worship. And it's so important. And I want to invite you as we move toward this time of prayer this morning to, as we breathe together, to enter into this imaginative space, this imaginative posture as we breathe. So despite the world as it is, with hurt and harm and violence, despite whatever heartbreak or grief or anxiety we carry into this space, the invitation is to imagine that we are breathing in peace and then breathing out love. Breathing in peace. Breathing out love. Peace and love. And I want to share with you that this practice of breathing in peace and breathing out love doesn't mean that the grief or heartache or discomfort go away. It doesn't mean that those aren't there, but it, it's a way to let that reality settle, to be maybe at peace with what is, to accept what is, to hold gently what is as we breathe in and then as we breathe out to offer love and kindness to what is, whether that's the hurts that we hold or whatever it might be, to offer love and kindness to those around us. So breathing in peace and breathing out love. Imagining a world of deep connection of deep belonging and deep care. Knowing this morning that that world is possible because we have experienced bits and pieces of it. And knowing also that there is so much pain so often in our lives, in the world, in the communities around us, so much hurt and violence that also exists in the world. And some of that is just a part of being alive, but breathing, we can hold that we can be with that. We can breathe in peace and breathe out love. So will you pray with me this morning? Will you join me in that spirit of turning inward and outward, that spirit of opening our hearts to all that is that time of attentiveness to what is hurting, what is aching, what is worthy of our care and gratitude, what is desiring praise this morning, will you join me in prayer? Spirit of love and life, spirit of countless names and beyond all naming, spirit that animates creation itself, spirit that whispers in the winds that shines in the stars, spirit that is in the muck and is the green shoot coming out of the muck. Be with us this morning. Be with us. Be with those who mourn. Be with this community. Be with this country. As so many of us mourn the killings in Atlanta these killings driven by a misogynistic, anti-Asian sentiment. 
be with the beloveds of those dear ones whose lives have been taken. Be with the communities that are grieving. Be with those of us who wonder again if we are safe, if our communities are safe, if our children and loved ones are safe. Be with us. And be with all people who live in fear of violence in whatever form it might take. Be with those of us who live in fear and help us find those sources of strength and places of safety and help us be agents of change. There's so much happening in our lives in our community and the world this morning. We hold in our prayerful awareness this morning that the trial of Derek Chauvin continues and that as this trial unfolds, we know that there are so many already traumatized, already hurting, already aching, that this trial opens up new wounds, new hurts, new aches. So we offer our prayers to those in our community, those outside of our community who are struggling as this trial continues. May we hold fast to the vision of the beloved community, that place where all can thrive and flourish and blossom, not in some other life, not in some other time, but in this life, in this time, right now. Spirit of life and spirit of love in this time of continued isolation, in this time of loneliness, remind us, be with us. Let us know in our bones and in our hearts that we truly are connected to the whole. Remind us how our actions and choices can ripple out across space and time. Despite what might feel like loneliness and isolation, remind us that we are intimately connected with one another. Remind us that a kind, loving gesture or speaking up on behalf of another or acting in solidarity with the community or another human being, interrupting the status quo, all of those things can ripple out, can set in motion a new pattern they can change lives and they can change how lives unfold. And surely this morning, this week, this month, this year, this time, this season, the world is in need of new patterns, new practices, new habits, and new ways of being that will help us know our collective beauty, our collective belonging, our collective humanity. Help us practice and discover these new ways of being. As we work for this new world, we honor and remember the cycles of life that are a part of living. The cycles we move through individually and collectively, the cycles of beginnings, 
the cycles of unfoldings and threshold crossings, the cycles of transformation and the cycles of endings. And I invite you now to share in the chat or to speak out loud or simply hold silently in the sanctuary of your heart the names of those you wish to hold, the names of your beloveds, the concerns you carry, the grief you move with the joy, the gratitude that is bubbling in your heart this morning, whatever it is to name those things, those worries, those gladnesses, those things alive in your heart, to name those in the chat as we hold this time of prayer and care together. Beloveds, we hold and witness the joys and sorrows that are with us and all, all around us. And I know I am certain that what has been shared in the chat is but a fraction of what we carry in this space. That so many of the sorrows or the grief is very present, is in our hearts and in the space, but not, not named in the chat. And so we hold those silent prayers, those joys, those grief, those places of heaviness, we hold that as well. And we pray that the grip of addiction may be loosened, the weight of oppression might be lightened, that grief would be shared, that joy will break through, and that love can make every suffering bearable for us all. May it be so. Blessed be and amen. and see those faces. Y'all, I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. And today, I want to start off by telling you a story. And I know, I know you have heard me talk about the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman a million times, and you honestly will hear, hear me talk about him a million more times. So many of you already know that the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman was a Black prophet and preacher, teacher, and pastor. Many of you already know that he served as spiritual advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that he was in many ways a critical part of the spiritual backbone of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. You know, because you've heard me talk about his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, this book that became a sacred text for Dr. King that he carried with him on his person when he had almost nothing else on those marches. And that this book, it 
talked about the life and the teachings of Jesus separate from the crushing colonialist nature of Christianity. And that Dr. Thurman wrote this book in particular, and he spells it out right in the introduction to offer spiritual sustenance and inspiration for people whose backs were against the wall. Now, I'll tell you too that Dr. Thurman's writings have been something that I go back to again and again over the course of my life. When I feel my back against the wall for whatever reason, it is his writings and meditations. Uh, those are where I go to find my way again. But today, I don't wanna talk about Dr. Thurman's writings. I wanna to talk to you a little bit about his life and in particular about something that happened when he was very young that changed everything for him and dare I say for us as well. So to tell you the story, I have to back up and let you know that Dr. Thurman Howard was raised by his family and in particular, his grandmother moved in and really helped to raise him as a young boy. You see, Howard's father died when he was just nine years old and his grandmother really worked with him to instill a deep sense of spirituality, something that he could hold on to no matter what was happening in the world around him. And so much was happening in the world around him and to him. You see, Howard's grandmother had been enslaved earlier in her life and she had not had the benefit of a formal education and she knew that she wanted a different life for her grandson, for Howard. So the times that it was, was the 1910s where Howard was growing up down in Southern Florida. And at that time, there was no real option for formal education if you were a black student in your town. There were only three high schools in the entire state that served black students. So if Howard was gonna get that formal education that his grandmother saw as a way out and a way up for him, they were gonna to have to send him away. So his family scrimped and saved. They put every penny they had together in order to help Howard go to Jacksonville to be able to attend high school. So here's what happened. Howard goes to the train station. He's got his bags with him. He is heading into eighth grade. He is 12 years old, alone at the Daytona Beach train station. He has bought his ticket. He is there and he is waiting to get on the train to head off to school. And that's when it happens. The conductor comes over and says to Howard, hey man, uh, you are gonna have to pay extra to be able to bring your bag. And uh, if you can't pay, you can't bring your bags. It's, it costs more to ship your trunk to go with you. Now Howard, he doesn't have any more money. He has literally spent every penny that his family has saved for years on the ticket to get him to Jacksonville. So there he is alone at the train station. He does what anyone and what any 12 year old would do. He sits down on the steps of the station and starts to cry. He's there with his head in his hands. When it happens, a black man in overalls walks by, sees him there, heads over to the ticket counter, pays his fare and keeps on going. The man never introduced himself to Howard. Howard never knew his name. 
It was a lifetime later. It was a lifetime later when it was time for Howard to write his autobiography at the end of his days. This book that would chronicle his many, many years as teacher, pastor, prophet, his life of the spirit. And Howard dedicated his book, his autobiography in this way. Let's see it together. To the stranger in the railroad station in Daytona Beach who restored my broken dream 65 years ago. So much gratitude. So friends, that's the story I wanted to tell you this morning. And this is how I wanna work with it together. You see in seminary, in therapy, in reading and writing, I have been taught that one way to work with the story, to really let it settle and sink into us is to try to imagine ourselves, to put ourselves in the place of each character in that story. So that's what I'm gonna invite us to do together today, to do this imagining. So in this case, with this story, we could imagine ourselves as Howard's grandmother, a woman who survived horrible experiences in her young life, a woman holding her family together, a woman instilling all the things that got her by into her young grandson and then imbuing him with her hope, her sense of possibility, her hard work with this dream that his life would be better than hers, that he could carry the dreams of their family into the future. We can imagine ourselves as the train conductor in this story. We can imagine maybe it was with a sense of sadism that he told young Howard, you don't have enough money to bring your bags with you. Or maybe, maybe it was with empathy, with a heavy heart that he had to tell this young boy he didn't have enough money to bring his bags and then watched him sit on the steps and cry. We can imagine ourselves as young Howard, a boy on his way to enter eighth grade in a far away town, carrying the hopes and dreams and all of the life savings of his family. We can imagine the fear and the anxiety he was probably feeling, the mix of anticipation and excitement, maybe the loneliness he was feeling at the train station. We can guess what it would be like to be told by the person in authority that he could not go, that he could not bring what he had with him. How scared he might've been, how broken he might've felt in those moments, his head in his hands there on the steps of the train station. We can imagine the shock, the surprise, that he might have felt, he must have felt when he found out his fare had been paid by someone he didn't even know, someone he would never know. And that thanks to the kindness of a stranger in that moment, he was off and on his way. We can imagine ourselves as the black man in overalls who saw a black boy alone in tears 
and stopped to pay his fare and then went on on his way. We can imagine ourselves as the older Howard, the one who was sitting quietly, gathering his thoughts and his stories there at the end of his long and dedicated life. We can imagine what it would feel like to be a man full of gratitude for the unknown stranger who restored his broken dream and changed the course of his life 65 years before. And friends, we can imagine ourselves as ourselves in our own lives. Here we are a hundred years later, a hundred years after the fact, we are the beneficiaries still of that investment, of that gift that an unknown stranger gave to a boy with his head in his hands on the steps of a train station. We are ourselves living in the legacy of that gift. We can imagine ourselves as any of these people, as all of these people, and so many more. Each and every one of these stories and these people are important. And here's the thing. This is the thing I swear I'm gonna spend my whole life working on and trying to learn, that we are at once ourselves, and we are at once every one of those people in the story. We are our own unique self and we are intimately connected and a part of one another. This is a spiritual paradox that we are living within. So this is of course a big part of what Dr. Thurman taught. And I'd like to show you a quote today that I think captures it. So let's put that up on the screen if you will. So this is written in 1965 in the language of the times. And as we work with it, I will make it more inclusive to hold all of us, all of us. But this, these were the words that Thurman wrote. He wrote, I know that a man must be at home somewhere before he can feel at home everywhere. Always the sense of separateness that is an essential part of individual consciousness it must be overcome even as it sustains and supports. This is the crucial paradox in the achievement of an integrated personality as well as of an integrated society. So let me take that apart with you. Let's give it some air. I know that is a dense statement. So Thurman would say, that the crucial paradox that we are living in, if we are to achieve the integrated personality and an integrated society is this. First, we've got to find a home somewhere. We have to feel encouraged and loved and known exactly as we are. Now, we can do some of this for ourselves. We can make a home in our bodies, in our own lives. And we help each other do this too. We need one another to be able to bear witness to the stories we need to tell, to have that experience of being known and connected. In whatever form it takes, we need deep connection. And I think for myself, when I think back on those moments in my life when someone else paid my train fare, which I tell you has happened time after time after time, when someone has noticed how I am doing, 
and has been there with me in it and has maybe helped me move through it when it has been what felt like unbearable suffering. Those moments when someone else made a place for me and connected me and paid my train fare. Those moments helped me feel at home in the world, known and connected. So first we have to find a way to feel at home, to feel known and connected and valued for exactly who we are. First, a person must be at home somewhere before they can feel at home everywhere. So that's when the next part comes in, the next move toward our spiritual growth, perhaps. And this is how Thurman puts it, that that sense of separateness that is an essential part of our individual consciousness, right? So that's our sense of who we are as an individual at home in ourselves and our lives. That has to be overcome to encompass something more, even as that individuality and that unique story sustains and supports us. So once we have found our home somewhere, then we have to come to know ourselves as one part of the larger whole. We are part of one another. Those are the words Thurman used over and over. We are of ourselves and we are of each other. Our individual stories are important and they connect us to the larger whole. And I would remind us that that larger whole that we are a part of stretches past to present to a future we cannot even imagine. So this is the truth of our collective experience. This is our collective truth. And I say our collective power. Each one of us is particular and important with stories that need to be owned and told and lived into and listened to and carried with respect. And we are all a part of each other, our lives intimately interwoven with one another, with those we know and those we will never know. All of us in all of our kaleidoscopic beauty are bound up with one another, tied in a single garment of destiny, as Dr. King would famously say. What affects one of us affects all of us. When one of us is hurt, all of us are hurt. When one of us is healing, all of us are healing. This is how it is. This is the collective story that we live within. So today, I wanna invite us to consider the role of our church, the story of our church in the collective story and the collective power that we have to build this world where when one of us heals, all of us are healing. That is what we want. So in order to do this, to get a picture, an idea of our church and its role in the larger world, I think it's always helpful maybe to see ourselves from the point of view of someone on the outside looking in. So I'm gonna invite us into that opportunity right now. Greetings, First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. I'm Susan Frederick Gray, president of your Unitarian Universalist Association. One of the honors I have as president is inviting the speaker, the preacher, for the Sunday morning worship at General Assembly, our annual association-wide gathering of Unitarian Universalists. This is an opportunity to feature some of the most outstanding speakers and worship leaders in our association. But this year, rather than invite one person, 
I invited one of the most outstanding teams in our association, your First Universalist Worship and Staff Team. Last year, at our first all-virtual General Assembly, the Sunday worship was viewed by over 12,000 UUs across the country. And this year, your congregation and your worship team will be front and center on Sunday as UUs everywhere gather together in worship. I invited your team because First Universalist has been a model of shared ministry and what it means to put the work of dismantling white supremacy culture and building anti-racist, anti-oppressive practices at the center of your ministry for years. You've also been on the front lines in support of the Movement for Black Lives in Minneapolis, bringing spiritual care and moral leadership in the wake of George Floyd's murder by police and the important uprisings for justice that follow. And I know this work continues today as the trial of Derek Chauvin begins. I hold you and your city in my heart and my prayers. I've also been fortunate to be a frequent visitor to your services online and have been inspired by your team's engagement of children and families in worship in this virtual year. Your leadership exemplifies some of the best practices for the creativity, spiritual depth, and moral leadership that is possible when we embrace the work of shared ministry rooted in love and justice. I am so grateful for the ministry that all of you at First Universal, First Universalist offer to each other in the world and for the many ways that you support this congregation. Your congregation's ministry is making an untold difference in the lives of people both within and beyond your congregation. You are making a difference to our wider faith community as well. You all are leaders in vision and depth and power of your ministry. And while I know that you all are approaching a time of change in your ministry, as Reverend Justin follows a new call in his heart, never doubt the strength that you have nurtured in your community, in your congregation, and in your staff team, and the life-saving ministry that you all make real every day. The strength of that ministry, of who you are, of who your leaders and your staff team are, that will continue to serve and lead you well. And your generosity makes it all possible. At this defining moment, when our UU values are so needed, when both our pastoral ministry and our prophetic moral leadership are needed, your generosity, your stewardship and commitment to your congregation is more important than ever. Thank you for the ways that you model an unleashing of generosity, of love, of justice, of healing, of ministry, and of commitment in your own lives, to each other, in Minneapolis, and for our wider faith community. I am so excited that this June you use everywhere and congregations all across our association will get to experience the gifts 
and the power and the depth of your ministry. Thank you, First Universalist in Minneapolis, for all that you do. My love and my blessings and my care to you all. Powerful, isn't it? To know that we are being held up as a beacon of creativity and spiritual depth and moral leadership in this time. To know that the president of our larger association has faith in us, is strengthened by us. And I like to imagine her virtually, of course, sneaking into the back pew of the sanctuary and worshiping with us, with her family. All of us being strengthened for the spiritual work and the justice work that is so necessary right now in our world. So it was four years ago that we launched our capital campaign to renovate our building with this commitment, that our gifts were not for ourselves alone, but our gifts were for building an inclusive future. Now, that commitment, it turns out, is at the center of who we have always been, of who we are, and who we are becoming. Because as universalists, we have always said and done, we have drawn the circle wide a love that is big enough to hold all of us, a love that will not let any one of us go. That is who we are at the center of our faith. That is the commitment we made with our capital campaign. That is the commitment we make with all of our gifts. We share our resources, the doors of our church, the physical building and our virtual presence are wide open. Membership without bounds, we are not for ourselves alone. We are here to build the inclusive future we dream about, to help everyone find a home somewhere so that they can be at home everywhere. That is what we are about. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is the work of our church. My dogs are even excited about it. You can probably hear them up there. <laughs> so I have to be honest, a vision this big, a commitment this big, it of course comes with a price tag. It does every year. So this year, as we plan to reopen our building and resume in-person ministries this fall, while maintaining our online presence and offering membership without bounds, while we plan to hire a new minister who will help shape our worship life in the direction of our hopes and dreams, as we move forward to more fully support our ministry with children and youth and families, both in the church and in our wider community, offering the spiritual resources and that feeling of being at home in the world that we all need. If we're gonna to continue to resource our staff and our volunteer leadership, our congregation and our larger community with anti-racism and anti-oppression coaching and teaching that leads us all toward transformation and liberation, if we are gonna do these things, we need to collectively raise $1.3 million to fund our operating budget for the next church year. Now, I know this price tag of $1.3 million may sound daunting at first, but I have to tell you, I am not scared. I know we can do this. I know we can do this together. And I know we can do this together because in so many other areas of church life, we are already recognizing our collective power. Here at this church, we do not 
rely on a singular leader or a singular story or any one person's financial gifts. Like the story that Amy shared with us earlier, we already know that if, when we're looking for how are we gonna get from here to the future we hope for, we can't do it alone. We can't look in the mirror and just see our own face. We need to look in the mirror and see the smiles of our collective faces beaming back at us, past to present to a future. We can hardly imagine all of those faces, all of us together, a big enough power to hold us to build the inclusive world we dream about. So today, as we launch our annual giving, giving effort for the church year that begins on July 1st, I invite you to consider what part you can play in this collective story and in our collective power. Many of you have asked me to break it down. What does this mean? How do we get from here to $1.3 million? One way to look at it is this, an annual gift of $1,200 from each adult in church will get us there. Now, I know that for some of us, an annual gift at that level is out of reach. And I know that for others, an annual gift at this level is a fraction of what you already give or what you could give. I know that for all of us, sharing our financial resources is one way for us to support the spiritual depth, the creativity, and the moral leadership that is at the center of this church. So this is what we're asking you to do. If you're already a sustaining giver, someone who gives every week or every month to pay your annual gift, we're inviting you to consider increasing your sustaining gift by 10%. Maybe that means an additional $3 a week or a month or $30 a month. Whatever it is, we ask you to consider that 10% increase. If you make your annual gift with a one-time gift, we're asking the same thing. We, would you consider increasing your total gift amount by 10% or more. And if you are someone who has never made an annual gift to the church, we are inviting you in. Join us in our collective story and in our collective power. We have big work of transformation to do within ourselves and within our community. Make an annual gift with us. So however you choose to make your annual gift, this is how you can do it. Let's see this slide together. So we are doing our best to make this as simple as possible. So you can head to this website to make your gift, or you can reach out to Chelsea Birch, our financial assistant directly via email or with a phone call. So friends, it will be, come on back to me, we can drop the slide. It will be our collective generosity that will determine how wide a welcome we are able to offer in the years ahead. Every gift of our time and our talent and our financial resources matters. Every single gift, no matter its size, matters. Because we need all of us, all of our stories and all of our power. Every one of our stories matters. Some days, some days we are the boy crying in despair on the steps of the train station. Some days we are the grandmother investing all that we have in our hope for a better future. Some days we are the man in the overalls paying the fare for a stranger. And some days we are the elders reflecting on a life intertwined with the generations, full of gratitude for the strangers 
that restored our broken dreams. We are all of these people and so many more. Our lives and our stories are interdependent, interwoven, inextricably linked. And when we know our own stories individually and collectively, we can know our power too. Together, we are wiser, more creative, more powerful than any one of us could ever be alone. So may we bring our stories and our power together. Each of us playing our part, doing what we can with what we have right here, right now, to move our world toward liberation and joy, to draw the circle wide and build the inclusive future that we dream about. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at First Universalist Church dot o-r-g